0: John the Apostle never forgot where he was when he first encountered Jesus Christ. He also remembered what he was doing, whom he was with, and even what time of the day it was, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Obviously, it was an encounter that made a very powerful and lasting impression on him. Today's Gospel reading tells us the story. John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples near the Jordan River. One of those disciples is specifically identified as Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. But the other disciple, who was there that day, is not identified. And that's led many scholars and many saints over the centuries to theorize that this other disciple was St. John himself, since John is never mentioned by name in his Gospel. He's either referred to as the Beloved Disciple, or the Other Disciple, or the Disciple Jesus Loved. And so St. John could easily have divided his life into two parts— The first part would have included everything that happened before this encounter with Jesus near the Jordan River. And the second part would have included this meeting with our Lord and everything that happened afterward until the day John died. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, my brothers and sisters, he changes everything. Everything. He changes the way you think, he changes the way you act, he changes how you look at life, he changes how you relate to other people, he changes how you deal with your problems, he even changes how you deal with your enemies. John, the son of Zebedee's life, was never, ever, ever the same after Jesus entered it. Neither was Andrew's or Simon's. In fact, as a sign of just how different Simon's life would be from then on, Jesus gave the man a brand new name. On the day he met him, as we heard a few moments ago, our Lord said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which the Gospel writer tells us is translated Peter. Now, given the powerful impact, the overwhelming impact that that Jesus had on these Apostles, given that fact, I ask you this morning, can you imagine any one of the Apostles, with the exception of Judas, ever taking a public stand against something that Jesus taught? After the Sermon on the Mount, for example, can you imagine... Peter, James, John, Andrew, or any of the other eleven, can you imagine them saying to other people, well, you know, that was really a great talk that Jesus gave here, except for that part about loving your enemies. Oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm one of his twelve apostles, but I just can't agree with that part of his message. Or after the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, can you imagine one of the apostles saying what some of Jesus' less committed disciples were saying? This sort of talk is hard to endure. How can anybody take it seriously? I can't imagine those things happening, my brothers and sisters, because these men had allowed Jesus to touch their lives to such an extent that they trusted his words totally, Completely, even when they didn't fully understand it. Oh, how things have changed in 2,000 years. Now, in our day and age, it's become a sign of intelligence and open mindedness and even compassion for people to say things like, Oh, yes, I'm a Catholic. Oh, yeah, of course, I'm a Christian. Oh, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I disagree. I disagree with this or that teaching of Jesus that comes to me through his church. That's a line that's often used about abortion and a host of other contemporary moral issues. And speaking of abortion, this coming week, once again, unfortunately... We observe the sad and tragic anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision which effectively legalized the practice in our own country. Now, at this point, we need to be clear about something. Abortion is not a religious issue. Please hear that. Abortion is not a religious issue. That's how our opponents try to frame it. They do that to gain political advantage. As one author I read recently put it, he said, "The humanity of the unborn is a matter of embryology, not faith." But because the Catholic Church believes that all innocent human life is to be respected and protected, because of that fact, she has a very definite position, a very clear position on this issue as do other pro-lifers, some of whom, incidentally, are atheists. No, you don't have to believe in God to be pro-life. You just have to know basic, fundamental, foundational biology. And you have to be intellectually honest. But the sad reality is, as we all know, in the last 42 years, many Catholics, and especially many Catholics in public life, have denied the basic truths of biology, and they have been intellectually dishonest on this issue. And one of the people, unfortunately, who contributed in a big way to all of this, to this problem, was the former governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, who passed away earlier this month. Governor Cuomo made it cool, he made it fashionable as well as politically advantageous for a politician to say, oh yeah, I'm a Catholic, but do you remember that speech he gave at the University of Notre Dame back in 1984? Some of us are old enough to remember that. I was in seminary at the time. It was entitled, Religious Belief and Public Morality, a Catholic Governor's Perspective. In that famous talk, Governor Cuomo said that he personally believed that the life of an unborn child should be protected, quote, even if five of nine justices of the Supreme Court disagree with me, end of quote. But then he went on in that speech to make it clear that he would not try to do anything to make abortion illegal again because to do so would mean that he was imposing his Catholic beliefs on other people. His argument, my brothers and sisters, was illogical. But a lot of people bought it. In fact, many people are still buying it, and not just on the abortion issue. Think, for example, of the big controversy in our state two years ago over so-called gay marriage. By their votes in the state legislature, Senator Algier and many other Catholic politicians on both sides of the aisle each said, in effect, I am a Catholic, but... I am a Catholic, but I don't accept the truth about marriage that's been recognized in every culture for centuries and which my church upholds. I am a Catholic, but I won't impose my personal beliefs on marriage on anybody else in the state of Rhode Island. So I'll end up letting them impose their views of marriage on me. Once again, the logic is faulty. But once again, a lot of people bought it. The difference, my brothers and sisters, between the apostles of Jesus in today's gospel and many modern-day followers of our Lord is to be found in where they put the but in the sentence. That's so important. That, in fact, is the key point. As I just made clear, many modern-day followers of Jesus put the but at the end of the sentence or at the end of the phrase. And that's where they make their mistake. They say, I am a Catholic, but I am a Christian, but I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but. The Apostles, on the other hand, they put the but at the beginning of the sentence. As I said at the beginning of my homily, once they met Jesus Christ, everything changed. Everything in their life changed. And so if anybody had tried to convince them afterward that abortion was okay, or that some other sin was okay, their response would have been, but I'm a Christian. But I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But I'm a disciple of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I don't condone sin of any kind, including my own. I am a Catholic, but, or but, I'm a Catholic, which of those do you say?